0: I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we dig into the coverage and examine how news is reported. Given what is now unfolding in Eastern Europe and the prospect of a wider conflict between Russia and the NATO alliance, we are dispensing with our usual format. Our starting point this week is Ukraine. With the last minute diplomacy failing and the prospect of an invasion growing from likely to inevitable, news outlets were relying on open-source intelligence, evidence to show their audiences the build-up of Russian troops and armour on the border with Ukraine.
1: I know you've been studying these satellite images closely, the troop movements, the build-up.
0: Monday, 5 p.m., Moscow time. Vladimir Putin assembles his security council at the Kremlin, a made-for-TV meeting that, if nothing else, produces some political
2: theory. (inaudible) Later that
0: night, in an hour long speech to the cameras, Putin denies that an independent Ukraine has a right to exist. Roughly 48 hours later, on Wednesday, Putin's Ukrainian counterpart, Volodymyr Zelensky, sends out a last ditch message.
2: Но граждане России должны Они должны знать правду. А правда в том, что нужно
0: остановиться, It was too late. The next day, just before 5 a.m. local time, Putin announces what he calls a special military operation to protect Russian-speaking Ukrainians from a potential genocide at the hands of Kiev. In what has come to be a trademark of war in the 21st century, some of the first images the world saw came from somebody's phone. And as the scale of the invasion made itself known.
2: It's tragic, it's irrational, it's also evil.
0: Many analysts on both sides of the geopolitical divide had to admit they got it wrong. A primary reason for that was the incessant spin coming out of the Kremlin and the channels it controls. Was that misinformation, or was it also an underestimation of Vladimir Putin's willingness to go to war? Taking us through the Russian side of this global story now, including cases of misinformation coming out of Moscow, is Johanna Hus.
1: Well, Richard, as we've reported before, this war is as much about words as it is about weapons. For months, as Western media and intelligence officers warned of an imminent invasion, Russian news outlets dismissed, at times even parodied those reports.
2: Biden allegedly announced that the opposition to Russia and Ukraine will begin in Bloomberg remembers the 15th of Politica writes about the 16th of February. Today, CNN is on Unlike
1: 2014 leading up to the annexation of Crimea, when reporters on the Russian airwaves were beating the drums of war, we were seeing very little of that kind of belligerent coverage. But that will change this past week. Russian propaganda has kicked into gear, notably on state-owned, Kremlin-controlled news channels, tasked with justifying the invasion. The push on Russian TV is relentless, all echoing the Kremlin's narrative on alleged Ukrainian aggression, the need to defend Ukraine's Russian-speaking population from some kind of genocidal attack.
3: Итак, Российская Федерация начала операцию по демилитаризации, денацификации Украины, операцию по спасению.
1: There are also videos reportedly produced and staged by the Kremlin of supposed Ukrainian attacks serving as a pretext for war. Misinformation beaming out of Moscow is not new. Russia has been honing these kind of tactics for eight years, ever since its annexed Crimea. It is an integral part of its hybrid war strategy. Alexei Navalny, Russia's jailed opposition figure and part-time journalist, has been tracking the propaganda closely, not by choice. State-controlled TV is the only thing he is allowed to watch now that he's behind bars. Navalny's colleagues managed to put out a series of tweets in his name in which he said that the invasion of Ukraine and the media spectacle around it are designed to distract Russians from the country's real issues, a faltering economy and a pattern of extreme corruption at the Kremlin.
0: Thanks, Joe. The conflict currently playing out in Ukraine involves former Cold War adversaries and competing versions of history. The Russian president provided a glimpse into his thinking last year when the Kremlin published an essay in Vladimir Putin's name where he argued that Russians and Ukrainians are of the same Slavic nation. He did it again this past week, questioning the very idea of Ukrainian statehood which does not go down well in Kiev, Washington, or at NATO's headquarters in Brussels. But for Putin, it's all part of a new historical discourse, one that emphasizes Russia's history as a great power and mythologizes the country's past. Among the victims of that historical rewrite are Russians themselves, the ones who have spent years researching and remembering the victims of political repression in what was the Soviet Union. Suddenly, they found themselves on the wrong side of the story and often on the wrong side of the law. The Listening Post's Tarek Nafanov from Moscow on the battle over historical memory in Russia.
4: December 28, 2021. An abysmal year for free expression in Russia comes to a fitting conclusion with the judge ordering the closure of the country's oldest human rights organisation. For more than 30 years, Memorial had preserved records and artefacts from Joseph Stalin's great purge, when show trials, mass arrests and executions touched every level of society. Memorial's Human Rights Center, which has also been shut down, kept track of political prisoners in Russia today, assembling a vast online database of repression in Russia.
2: What happened in court last year was that the state exposed itself. The prosecutor spun the idea that Memorial does not paint the history of our country in a positive light, that it demonizes the USSR as a terrorist state. When we started Memorial, the true scale of the repression was absolutely hidden. Memorial did a lot to open up the archives. What is happening today is not just a regression. It is a crime against citizens of Russia, because citizens have the right to know their history.
5: The main function of Memorial was to gather evidence of the national tragedy our country experienced. My grandfather, Mark Mikhailovich Alberts, was shot on November the 1st, 1937. More than 1,000 people like him were shot the same day. They wanted to force him to admit that he was a Trotskyist, even though there wasn't a single shred of evidence to support that. This was the memory gathered and researched by a memorial. memorial.
2: Memorial started functioning as a political organization, and that really is a pity. I remember Memorial when it was created at the end of the 1980s as an organization aiming to help the relatives of people who were imprisoned and to remember them. Nowadays, it has become an anti-Russian political organization. Mikhail
4: Mikhov's argument echoes that of the state, which has grown more defensive of Russia's historical legacy When Memorial first surfaced in the late 1980s, things were different. Citizens were seeking out the truth about Soviet state terror, and relatively little stood in their way. In 1990, members of Memorial installed this, the Solovetsky stone here in Moscow, to honor victims of political oppression in Soviet Russia. It was a period of glasnost, openness and transparency, when Russians were learning about the atrocities committed under Joseph Stalin. The decision to put it here in Lubyanka Square was significant. We're right across the road from what was the KGB's headquarters, now home to the FSB, the Federal Security Services. But 30 years on, some of those dark chapters from Russia's past are being erased. History is being rewritten.
5: When Vladimir Putin came to power, practically all the archives were closed the people who exercise power in russia today are former kgb officers or members of the foreign intelligence and the fsb they are ideological supporters of the kgb and the ussr they want to pretend that there was a short period of repression but in reality the whole governance system of the soviet state was based on violence There were a lot of chat that, you know, Stalin had nothing to do with that. We know now, we have all these numbers. This is Stalin, Eosip Stalin, that his uh, signature, they were killed just because, you know, there was the politics of terror, because violence was the form of governance. That's it.
2: For the current Russian leadership, the Kremlin, History is a tool for introducing certain myths into people's minds. What we see today is the revenge of the state security agencies, which were in retreat in the early 1990s. The state no longer wants to know the truth about itself, it builds its own history and arranges it to fit its ideological purposes.
4: It's not that Vladimir Putin is denying that political repression took place. In 2017, he unveiled this, the Wall of Grief, Russia's first official monument to those killed by Stalin. Putin said, this terrifying past cannot be deleted from national memory. But little by little, the Russian state has reclaimed sole custody of Russia's memory. The focus is not on the crimes of the past, but on the triumphs. Particularly the victory over the Nazis in World War II, which has become a central pillar in a story that's all about Russian greatness. A campaign to sanctify Russia's war heroes is playing out in popular culture and in public space. The government has championed patriotic films that lionize the military and affirm its use of force. <laughs> Many of these state-funded blockbusters centre on Stalin's leadership in what is known in Russia as the Great Patriotic War.
2: war,
4: Moscow is filled with tributes to historical figures, patriots who ensured the survival of the state. It's where you can find pop-up propaganda showcasing Russia's military arsenal. Some of these murals are sponsored by historical associations run by senior officials close to the president, including this one, opposite the Kremlin. It was commissioned by the Russian Military Historical Society, where Mikhail Mikhov is scientific director.
2: The victory of the Soviet army in the Second World War has a crucial role in how Russians self identify. We have to hold on to some constants, such as our victories during the Patriotic War of 1812, the First World War, or the Great Patriotic War. These allow us to feel self sufficient in this world. We can say to other nations, We gave you freedom. We live in a world that was created by the Soviet Union in 1945.
4: Missing from that narrative are inconvenient periods of history, like August 1939, when Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler agreed to a non-aggression pact, arguably paving the way for a world war that started one week later. Over time, Stalin's legacy, once so discredited, has been rehabilitated. In 2019, a survey by the Levada Center found 70% of Russians thought he had played a positive role in Russian history.
5: People are constantly told that without Stalin, the Russians would not have won the war.
1: Stalin is not from victory, and victory not
5: PUTIN HAS NOTHING ELSE TO OFFER RUSSIAN CITIZENS. HE CANNOT OFFER THEM WEALTH AND PROSPERITY. AND THAT IS WHY HE IS ONLY OFFERING THE MYTHS OF SOME GREAT periods IN HISTORY. HAVING
4: SHAPED A GRAND HISTORICAL NARRATIVE ABOUT RUSSIA'S PLACE IN THE WORLD, VLADIMIR PUTIN NOW WANTS TO PROTECT IT. A new national security strategy, signed by Putin in 2021, says traditional Russian values and historical memory are under attack and must be defended. Before Russia invaded Ukraine this week, Putin once more revealed his obsession with righting past wrongs by questioning Ukraine's historical right to exist.
2: I want to emphasize from the first steps стали строить свою государственность на всего, что нас объединяет. Стремились сознание, историческую память миллионов людей. I would never have believed it 30 years ago. If someone would have told me all this would begin to repeat itself. We have not learned any worthy lessons from history. Any state, any community of people often live with myths about the past, but all myth-making begins with a set of values. What is valuable for the group of people now leading Russia? To remain in power forever, to consume, to occupy. We can see that now with the revanchist speech on Ukraine, and to convince everyone that the state is an absolutely sacred object which cannot be encroached on in any way. One political leader who may
0: be grateful that the eyes of the news world are now trained on Ukraine and not on his country would be India's Narendra Modi. With elections either underway or looming in some key states, Modi's Bhartiya Janata party, the BJP, keeps playing its Hindu nationalist anti-Muslim card. The vast majority of Indian news outlets are not just okay with that approach they adopt it themselves, sometimes out of fear of the authorities should they criticize Modi, or because conflict sells and attracts viewers in one of the world's most competitive news markets. India likes to brand itself as the world's biggest democracy. Is that really the case? True democracies have independent media outlets that hold governments to account. That is not the case in Narendra Modi's India. Politics do not get much uglier than what India has to offer in 2022. This post, with its stereotyping and dog whistling, showing the hanging of Indian Muslims, promising terrorists will see no mercy, is not the work of a radical fringe. It comes from an official account of the BJP, the country's ruling party, and was posted by its communications team in Gujarat, a state that will hold an election later this year. Gujarat was once home to Prime Minister Narendra Modi. It is where he shaped his politics, made his name.
6: Stereotyping a community through its clothing and then showing uh, members of that community hanging from a noose is not something that would be acceptable in any uh, democracy in the world, and it shouldn't be. It has become acceptable in this country and it requires a lot of work from activists to be able to take such material off social media.
7: Gujarat is Mr. Modi's home state. And for the Twitter handle of the ruling party, for the Instagram handle of the ruling party, to post an image of Muslim men hanging by the news, I mean, the message could not be clearer. I checked the reactions, you know, on my social media, and even people who are usually fence-sitters, quote-unquote, apolitical, even they were completely gobsmacked by this. Their reactions were, okay, this is our ruling party, what is happening, how is this normal, how is this completely acceptable in this day and age, but of course we have we can't look at this cartoon in isolation.
0: Not with what's been coming out of Uttar Pradesh. UP is India's most populous state. More than 200 million people live there. It is in the middle of its own state election, one that is seen as a bellwether for national elections that are two years away. Narendra Modi's man in UP is Chief Minister Yogi Adityanath. When this interviewer asked him about another politician, a prominent Muslim one, Adityanat used a term to describe Muslims, a slur related to the Islamic practice of circumcision, one that does not quite translate into English, but was extraordinarily
6: offensive. <laughs>
0: The interviewer just carried on.
6: The word uh, katmullah refers to somebody who's uh, fanatical and obstinate and because it uh, contains the word mullah, it refers specifically to Muslims. It is not surprising that this man used the term, he's used much worse. It is uh, not surprising either that the television host who asked him the question which got this response didn't react more strongly than she should have.
3: Far too many news outlets seem to have decided that it is the opposition that has to be grilled, not the ruling party. You see it every night on prime time news. The, the topics, the hashtags, the headlines, all the combativeness is directed at the opposition. ZMCL can see more than 100 countries. ZMCL can see more than 100 channels. Congress party 10 Congress Party will come to ZMCL. So TV news continues to thrive on confrontation in India. It's just that it's no longer speaking truth to power. Instead, it is speaking on behalf of power.
0: And providing power with a platform, even when that's against the rules. This interview Modi did with ANI, a national news agency, should not have been aired since it took place within 48 hours of the polls opening in Uttar Pradesh. That is a black and white breach of India's electoral
7: laws. Uh, investigation between...
0: Modi did it anyway, and the electoral commission has yet to be heard from.
7: At one point, in fact, the prime minister is not even looking Uh, at the interview directly, he just turns around and looks at the
0: camera. So
7: there's not even like a farce of this being some sort of dialogue between two people which just tells you what this interview supposedly was all about. That interview is then circulated and carried by pretty much every publication in the country.
3: Narendra Modi, in the last seven over seven years that he's been Prime Minister, he has not addressed a single press conference. He has never given journalists the chance to ask him questions off the cuff.
5: Uh-huh.
3: The only media appearances that he makes are well-scripted television interviews where the questions are always softball. But time, and we haven't really seen an interview yet where anyone has ever grilled the crime minister or asked probing questions of him.
0: It's not for a lack of journalists or news outlets. India's media ecosystem is the world's largest. Almost 400 24-hour television news channels. Tens of thousands of newspapers and websites. Since 2014, when Narendra Modi was first elected Prime Minister, the vast majority of those channels have become pro-BJP. Modi's brand of nationalism is built on conflict pitting the Hindu majority against Muslims with some anti-Christian content thrown in. Peddling conflict also happens to be a winning formula in the 24-hour news game. It's bad for populations, but good for ratings. Stray from the consensus, as Rana Ayub has done through her reporting, and you risk facing vilification, even death threats from online activists or legal investigations and court cases brought by the authorities. We contacted multiple BJP spokespeople with questions about this story. We got nothing back.
7: They don't feel it necessary to respond because they have their own ecosystem. They have their own set of news anchors who have kind of already built this image of Western media as propagandists. This narrative that whether it's the Washington Post or Al Jazeera or New York Times, they're all here to spread a propaganda against Narendra Modi every time a critical question is asked. The New York Times has done it again. The American newspaper's latest article on the Pulwama
3: terror attack is an example of how Western media misleads readers.
7: Because the government has been able to successfully enter average Indian middle class drawing rooms via news channels or just simply, frankly, WhatsApp forwards. There is almost this sense of insurmountable impunity with which the government acts, to the point that no amount of criticism will get to them. That we don't need the independent media or we don't need the foreign media to listen to us or platform us.
6: हाउस भी उनके देश के हितों के लिए भी बीच की जो स्पर्धा होती है तो करते हैं तो उनकी
0: अपनी दुनिया है चलने दीजिए। India's media ecosystem has been known to feed on itself as it did in Gujarat. After Twitter took down that tweet for violating its rules, the BJP said it did not intend to target Muslims, that newspapers and TV channels show images of criminals and that the caricature was based on them. That is how what goes around in the Indian news media, the hate, comes around. And it does so at the expense of other stories of fundamental importance that go un- or under-reported. Stories such as, how are hundreds of millions of Indians going to feed themselves today?
6: 60% of India's population is dependent on free grain. 800 million individuals. The primary narrative in India is not about poverty. There are no debates on the economy. What we hear every night is Islamophobia. Are they not forcing their views on their children? How can we persecute Muslims today? and on what subject, whom they cannot marry, where they cannot stay, what they cannot wear. And the responsibility of this falls on the free and independent media of this country. They have chosen to do what they do every night, where they echo what the government says every night. And it is because of them, in large measure, that the present and the future look quite unique.
0: And finally, back to the Ukraine story, one of the Russian news channels that carried Vladimir Putin's speech this past Monday was RT. Its editor-in-chief, Margarita Simonyan, has been busy overseeing the channel's coverage, bouncing from talk show to talk show, often showing up on other state-owned news channels like Russia One, where she is a frequent presence on anchorman Vladimir Solovyov's program. They've attracted big audiences and at least a few viewers in Brussels at the European Union who disapprove of their kind of journalism. Simonian and Solovyov have both been hit with sanctions by the EU, which calls them propagandists. We're leaving you now with a few excerpts of the kind of news coverage Brussels is talking about, and we'll see you next time here at the Listening Post.
7: Во-первых, я не понимаю, почему
2: в студии нет шампанского. каждый день такое, не каждый день. Во-вторых, вы стоите такие вот спокойные, уверенные э Сдержанные мужчины, а мне, мне сложно подбирать слова, у меня перехватывает просто вот горло, и я испытываю эмоции близкие к эйфории, которые мне очень сложно сдерживать.
0: Написали «Соловьё автор» в санкционном списке, что то об этом думаешь, ничего об этом не думаю. во-первых, я этого не знаю, там увидим, но затем, ну, вела и вела это.
2: И это сегодня Свершилось. Это просто, это настоящее счастье. И я, конечно, сейчас хотела бы быть не здесь, я хотела бы быть в Донецке, где я была год назад, и где сейчас люди, несмотря на комендантский час, вышли на улицы с русскими флагами, кричат «Россия!» И мне тоже хочется
1: прям кричать, веришь? «Россия!
7: Россия!»